I'll be reading from Mark 15, 33 to 39. You can follow along on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, come to the end of uh, this book uh, that we've been in twice now over the last uh, 13 years, I ask God that you would once again uh, reorient us to who you are. If there's parts of our lives that um, because of the way that we live changed what we think about who you are, I pray that you would uh, reteach us and that you would call people into discipleship to you, to follow you, God. So Holy Spirit, would you be our guide? Lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. My uh, daughter, Juniper, is uh, four and a half, not four, four and a half years old. That's very important. And um, as she would tell, will tell you, almost every day. Um, and uh, she's um, super into uh, uh, water bottle stickers. And she has, like, like her mom, like 50 water bottles. And so there's just stickers everywhere all over her. And so because of that, you know, our, our family's kind of into, uh, into the same thing. So all of us have a bunch of stickers on our water bottles. And my wife just got me uh, a new one. And I just put it on just like last week. Here it is. And um, <laughs> I love this sticker so much. And it's on my, my uh, water bottle right next to um, Bigfoot, which will be the next series, not this series. Um, and so... <clears throat> uh, and so I like this, I like this, I, I like this sticker so much, I strangely love the sticker, and, or maybe it's not so strange, and I, I think that this sticker would be a great logo for the book of Mark. I think it's, I never said that Jesus, in the book of Mark. This is, I think, the point of the book of Mark, is that we have an idea of what Jesus is and who he is, and Mark has to use these amazing rhetorical literary uh, devices throughout his book to show us who Jesus really is. And this is what, this is what happens. See, we project onto Jesus so much. Uh, cultures do this, people do this, political parties do this, different ideologies place things on Jesus that he never said, nor did he ever mean to say. One of the things Mark does in his gospel is tell the story of Jesus in such a way that those things that you think Jesus is saying get confronted and challenged with the reality and the truth of who Jesus really is and what it means to be his disciple or his follower or maybe in modern vernacular, his apprentice, to become like him. But the whole book is a discipleship book. The book of Mark is a, a book of this is Jesus and what does it look like to follow him? That's what the whole book is about. And all of this comes into clarity right here. You can take that down now. All of this comes into clarity right here in our passage this morning. The book of Mark 
is like the movie uh, Fight Club. No spoilers. But like where you really, you only really understand the movie by seeing the end and then reading the end of the movie into the beginning and the rest of the movie. That's the only way you understand that movie. And this is the way Mark writes his book, or that's the way Fight Club did after Mark, whatever. Um, and I think this is brilliant. I, th- I love this. This is why this is our second time through it in 13 years, is because this is, not only is it really good writing, um, it's really, really important to understand. This is the way Mark writes. See, the context of this book is that sticker. People in this narrative constantly and persistently are putting Jesus or onto Jesus who they think he is. The disciples do this, the crowds do this, the religious leaders do this, and the whole way through the book, the way it's written, is to allow the reader, you and I, who most likely does the same thing, puts onto Jesus all this stuff. Mark assumes that you do this when you're reading it, because he wants you to read yourself into the book. You do this, and they're doing it too. Everyone does this. They read onto Jesus what they think he is and who they think he is. The way he does this is he writes this book knowing that, with all these characters, to show this is who Jesus really is. This is who you think he is. This is what you think he said. And they need to be, everything needs to be reinterpreted in light of one event, the cross. This is the, the revelation. This is the, once you see our section today, once you see it, you're supposed to read that throughout the rest of the book. You're supposed to go back and reread it and go, I know how, the, how it ends now, I'm gonna go back and how does this whole thing fit together? So what I'll, what I'll try to do today is like the end of the movie Fight Club, go back and all these, give you like just little vignettes of, do you see, do you see, do you see, do you see, do you see how the end is read into all of it? But, and once we get that, which happens at the end, we can and only then understand the rest of the book. So let me explain what I mean by this by giving you a few vignettes. The book of Mark opens like this. This is the very first sentence of the book of Mark. Mark 1.1. It opens like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Seems harmless enough, right? Just here it is. It's not the best beginning of a book, right? It's like the beginning of the book. This is the beginning of the book. It's kind of weird, but there it is. This is the beginning. Of, and the good news is basically the gospel, Right? That's what you and I would call it. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the Christ, the anointed one, comma, the Son of God. In film and in literature and in and, and fiction, there are a couple of different techniques that writers will use or filmmakers will use to move the plot of the, the story along. One of them is called the MacGuffin Technique. Where, the, where a plot device is used that, set up, that sets the characters in motion and drives the entire story. A MacGuffin is uh, an, an object sometimes, or an idea, or a person, or a goal that the characters are either in pursuit of or which serves as the motivation for all of their actions. So think the Sorcerer's Stone in the very first Harry Potter book that I'm rereading right now, just so fun. Or the One Ring in Lord of the Rings or the the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's that thing, that object or idea that is introduced in the first act of of the story and it carries the characters along throughout the story and then it makes sense only at the end, except for Pulp Fiction, which it doesn't really make sense, but anyway. The other device is this. It's called a Chekhov's gun. 
where there's an element of the story that gets introduced at the beginning, and by the end, that element is the key to the whole plot. It allows the readers and the viewers to see connections through the whole story, hidden clues only in hindsight, right? So um, think um, the knife in the movie Knives Out, where it's introduced in the first act, and then by the end, you realize the importance of it at the end, and you understand, obviously, the title of the movie, Knives Out. Okay, I say all that to say, the Son of God is kind of like both of these. It's a rhetorical device that Mark uses to set up his entire book. The plot of the whole book is in that one sentence. Introduced at the beginning and it runs through the book and it drives and it motivates the entire story going forward. Now how does it do this? Think of it like this. When you think of the term Messiah, Son of God, or Jesus, the, the Christ, the Son of God, what you're supposed to think and what all of us think, typically, especially if you're Jewish, is the Messiah is the Savior. He's the King. He's um, the hope of all humanity. He's, especially for Israel, he's the hope. We, in our vernacular, we might say hero. He's the, the hero. So Jesus is introduced as the hero, like a hero will do certain things. So we have expectations of what a hero will do. In our vernacular, in their vernacular, Messiah will do. There's ideas of what we think that means. However, like my new sticker, Mark uses the idea and assumption that most readers and all the characters in the story think they have an idea of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God, but they really don't know what that means or what it means to follow this Jesus. And this is what makes the story so brilliant. Mark plays into this. When we read this, Jesus is doing, when, he, when we start the book, Mark's like, Jesus is the son of God. And you're like, oh my gosh, the son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the hero. This is it. This is what, and Mark writes, assuming that you think you know what that means. And he starts, and he uses that, and he leverages that. And at the very beginning, he, Jesus does all the things that you think a Messiah would do, a hero would do. Let, actually, turn to uh, Mark 1 right now, just uh, in your Bibles. Turn to Mark 1 and 2 and just glance at the, the, the headings of each section in Mark 1 and 2. These are the headings. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. And you're like, yeah, that would, that would be what a hero would do. A, a Messiah would do. Um, Jesus heals many. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. This is just the very beginning of Mark. Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts kicking butt. This is what you think a hero would do. Jesus, a hero, a savior, a messiah, whatever, this is what you think you would do. Actually, there's a, it almost gets, almost gets like, um, like, a, like comic book hero by Mark 5. It gets so like over the top crazy, the power of Jesus in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus crosses over um, the Sea of Galilee to the other side, to a part that is not permitted that Jews go, to a, a cemetery, because there's a, a, a man who is possessed by a legion of demons, like a ton of demons, so much so that he's turned into a wild beast, like legit wild beast. He's strong enough to break chains, lives in the caves. I mean, it's just like, like thriller. It's like so weird. And that's what it's supposed to be. And, and not just that, on their way over to see this guy on a boat, there's a storm that kicks up that the disciples think we're getting, they're, they're, they're professional fishermen. They're like, this is the worst storm we've ever seen. We're all gonna die. 
And Jesus is asleep in the middle of a storm, and then they wake him up, and Jesus is like, why'd you wake me up? Like, we're gonna die in a storm. He's like, be still, and then everything, storm goes away. Disciples are like, what? I mean, just imagine the, the drama of like squall, crazy hurricane. You, we, that, usually, if, if you are like massively terrified of like um, cruise ships because they're the most dangerous things in the whole world, you think, like me? Somehow on Instagram, all of, the, all of the storm wrecks of those things show up on my feet, right? And I'm like, oh, this is why I don't go on this. Imagine that. It's, ah, and then it's just calm, just perfectly calm. How dramatic that would be. And then they keep going, and Jesus goes to this man and delivers this man from all his demons. And then leaves this man. This is the same chapter, by the way. Leaves this man and then encounters um, a woman who's um, bleeding and and heals her kind of on accident, and then there's so much power, she's like touches his clothes and is healed. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. And then there's a girl who's sick, and by the time Jesus gets there, she's dead, and then she, he raises her from the dead. Like, chapter five, it's, it's, you're supposed to be going, look at the, this is the Messiah. Look at how powerful he is. Look at how he's nothing can touch him and he's dodging religious leaders and catching them in their own traps and he, he's so smart and witty with his words, all of this stuff. Okay, remember, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this, all of this is, is some Son of God stuff, right? This is it, this is the hero stuff, this is Son of God stuff. However, the way Mark tells a story, this will take a dramatic turn in chapter eight. Like, dramatic turn. Mark started out his story by telling us readers who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of God. And the central theme will be actually, that, that thing will be the question surrounding the followers in chapter eight when they're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says, who do, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, well, you're like, you're like a leader like Moses and you're powerful like Elijah and like all of these things are saying about you. And then Jesus asks the question, this is the question, who do you say that I am. And then Peter speaks up. And Peter just says, um, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And the thing is, it's true. The readers know this. It's like if you're reading this, you're like, oh, Peter got it right. That's what it said in verse one, chapter one, like the very beginning, first sentence. Peter, Peter got it right. We know that Peter got this right. But notice, Peter's designation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, carries with it all of the connotations that are strongly both nationalistic and oriented towards the exercise of power. You're the Christ because you kick butt, like the devil's butt and religious leader. You're just, you're just doing it all. Storms, everything. You're the, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says this really strange thing. Okay, don't tell anyone. Just so weird. Don't tell, wait, wait. If, if people finally realize that you're the Christ, wouldn't you want us to tell the world? And Jesus said, in this point in the story, not yet. Don't tell anyone. Actually, throughout all of the book of Mark, anyone who realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus tells them to be quiet. Even the demons Demons like, we know who you are. You're the, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, be quiet, shut up, and come out of the man. Like, deliver this man, and then the demons can't talk anymore. 
Everyone who says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, throughout the entire book, Jesus tells them to shut up, to be quiet. Now, commentators call this the secret messianic motif, which is Jesus tells everyone not to reveal who he is. If they think they understand who he is, Jesus commands them not to tell a soul, and you have to ask yourself why. Why in the world is this happening? And the answer is, you don't have the whole picture yet. You think you know who I am, but you don't have the whole picture yet. If you go and tell people I'm this, I'm this, but I'm not only this. Wait, okay, so this is exactly what Jesus said. Don't tell anyone, this is chapter eight in, in Mark. And then it says this, verse 31. Then, after Peter said you're the Christ, and after Jesus said don't tell anyone, he said then, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, there's that title again, there's that device again, rhetorical device in, in Mark's story. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why would, Jesus, why would Peter do this? Because Jesus' head isn't on right. It's like a coach in halftime and the players are like, we're gonna lose, we're gonna die. They're gonna crucify us out there. And the coach grabbing him like, no, you're not. You're gonna win. <laughs> Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. This is Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, dude, you're losing it right now. You know, this is, you, you need some rest. You need some sleep, you need some food. We're gonna do this thing, man. We're take, we're, you're the Messiah, we're, doing, we're with you. We're, you're gonna be enthroned just you can't think like this, okay? Negative thoughts, go away. Negative thoughts, go away. Look at me, look at me in the eyes. This is Peter doing this thing, rebuking him. Okay. And so Jesus, um, Jesus <laughs> then rebuked Peter. And the, the word here, rebuke, for the way Jesus does it is a lot stronger of a term. It's the term used for the, 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 the demons. And says, get, he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter right now is playing the part of the Satan, of the one tempting Jesus away from the will of God. And Jesus says to him, you, have in mind the you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but you have in mind merely human concerns. What that means is this. There is a way that you see what triumph is, what winning is, what power is. That's what you think, but that's not the will of God. That's your will. That's the thing you want to see, up and to the right, always progressing, always moving, always growing, always getting better. That's what you want to see. But that's not the will of God. You have in mind the thing you want to see. You're projecting on me what you think a Messiah is, but you're missing it. Then he says right after this, I'm going to the cross. Whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross to do so. This was last week. We talked about this last week. This is where it begins to happen where we think Messiah, the Son of God, Hero Jesus is one thing and it must be redefined in terms of suffering. What Mark is trying to do is he's trying to get disciples of Jesus today in San Francisco to redefine what you and I think that following Jesus means. We typically mean something like Victory over everything, total success, 
like putting on the winning, you know, ball, John 3:16 or whatever. Like I did it. Jesus gave me the strength to do it, to defeat, to win. We're Americans. We just want to win all the time. Win, win, win. We think following Jesus means that, but Mark's like, no, actually being a follower of Jesus means suffering. We can be guilty of making up our own versions of Jesus as well. Even as closest followers, we're initially guilty of that. We make up and follow a Jesus that we're comfortable with. I do this, by the way. I'm not just saying you, I do this. Make up a, a, a Jesus that we're comfortable with, that will fight for our causes and our agendas and our political positions, whether it would be world peace or self-righteousness, religion or spiritual, spirituality. We fashion our Jesus and what we think he would do, and then we follow it. And the reason why Jesus tells almost everyone who thinks they know who he is not to tell a soul is because they don't have it right. Those who have recognized that Jesus is the Messiah have much to learn about what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. So after this very, very important, pivotal moment in Caesarea Philippi, the mighty works of Jesus almost stop, altogether stop. We find only one exorcism, one healing, and one like cursing of a withering fig tree. And all of those are symbolic, by the way, and that's it. The controlling symbol for interpreting the real Jesus then becomes the cross. And Jesus says it over and over again. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. And if anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross and follow me. Jesus can be rightly understood and rightly followed only as the son of man who will surrender power in order to suffer and die. And this is what brings the dramatic tension all throughout Mark's book. No one truly sees Jesus for who he is. No one does. The ones who do, he tells to be quiet. The ones who don't, they reject Jesus altogether. Some follow only to leave later. No one sees Jesus until the cross. Because who Jesus is is wrapped up in what he came to do. And what it means to be his disciple is to follow him to the cross. And this is what we talked about last week. The, I went in detail that I, I don't often do because it, it, it's pretty gnarly, like the, the gruesome details of the cross that Jesus would go to his death. And he would go to his death being innocent, not just innocent, but good. He went around doing good to people. It was like the worst possible thing happening to someone who least deserves it. It's a, it's a tragedy. And he was rejected by his own people. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends and betrayed with a kiss of all things. He was abandoned by all his other friends in a mob, which is really scary in and of itself, this a mob who knows you're innocent chooses to punish you instead of punishing someone they know is a criminal, Barabbas. That was last week. Then you get the horror of the crucifixion, the actual crucifixion on the cross. And as Jesus died, he screamed on the cross. Jesus screamed twice, a loud cry twice. And this is astonishing for a couple of reasons. One of it is when he screamed one time, he said, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which we'll get to in a second, which is crazy that he would say that on the cross. But just the fact that he, he cried out, on the, he yelled on the cross is actually another astonishing thing. Last week he said, you die on a cross by suffocation. You can't breathe, let alone scream. So this has got to be kind of astounding in itself. And so a Roman centurion who was a trained executioner who probably oversaw the deaths of dozens, if not hundreds, is standing there making sure, he's one of the people that makes sure that Jesus completely dies. 
And as Jesus cries out the second time and then breathes his last, this Roman centurion who presides over all these deaths says, this is is a different death. And he says this, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. He sees the way Jesus dies and said, truly, this man was the son of God. And here's the thing. Remember, everyone is rebuked who says that before him. Everyone is told to be quiet. But he's not rebuked. He's not told to keep quiet because the Roman guard sees Jesus for who he is. And Mark leaves it there, open for the world to know, this is the Son of God. Tell the world about this. This is the Son of God. See, the real Jesus can only be rightly known at the cross. And so when Mark opens his book, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we follow all of that and we don't see the Son of God. We don't see or we think we see, but we only see a part of it. And we think he's a miracle worker, but he's not. He actually is someone who's going to the cross and calling his followers to do the same. And then he finally dies on the cross. And then Mark says, okay, what's, what did the centurion say again? Yeah, let's leave that there. This is the Son of God. This, this, right here on the cross. If you only know Jesus as the teacher or the spiritualist or a humble guru, you don't have the whole picture. If you only know Jesus as a hero or a healer, you don't have the whole picture. He is all those things, for sure. He's he's a philosopher like we've talked. He's a teacher. He teaches a way of living. All of that stuff is true, but if you only know him as that, you don't have the whole picture. And I would say you don't even have it right. You You have to know this part of it. Okay. So that would, by the way, that was, that's Mark. That's how Mark tells the story. This is the way, the way Mark uses these rhetorical devices at the beginning that makes sense at the end, and you read through them all the way. Okay, but what does that mean? What do we learn? What's so important that we, that we know as people who are reading this? Well, there's a few things I think that's happening around this scene that, that is in our text today that I think reveals some of what's going on here that I, I, that I think might be important for us to understand as followers of Jesus or potential followers of Jesus. In verse 34, look at this with me. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these are the only words of Jesus on the cross recorded by Mark and Matthew, by the way. And these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are the most stark astonishing and scandalous words in the gospel. These are, when you think about it, that the Son of God would be forsaken by God. What does that, how, he, he was, Philippians says he was the very image of God. He was near God, close to God, had intimate relationship with God, was one with God, all this stuff we learn in John, all the rest. And, and this, this God would say, why am I, I, I am forsaken. Why, why have you forsaken me? Actually, it's actually scandalous. There's something astonishingly scandalous about this. Um, there's a, uh, a piece of art by a man named Andreas Serrano, and it's called Piss Christ. And here's the image. Um, the, you might know about this piece of art. Um, the way he made this art was he took a, a, just a common crucifix that you would buy at Amazon or whatever, 
and he submerged it in his own urine and took pictures of it and then made it modern art. And so there's so much that's been written about this piece of art from every single side, I mean everywhere. Like, like um, it's been called like a death work. I just was reading a book by um, Carl Truman, a really good book, and he calls this a death work. Like this is the blasphemous. This is like people taking what is sacred and making it profane and not just profane but scandalous. And this is, the pro this is like a picture of our culture right now. And I, I think that's true. Uh, it's been called all kinds of things. I think it is somewhat blasphemous and scandalous and horrible and very close to what's going on during the crucifixion. I think this is what's happening. I, I think it's lost on us still. I think this kind of captures it. This piece of art kind of, if you like know what's happening here, you're like, ooh, I don't think you're supposed to do that. And Jesus hanging on a cross as the Messiah, that wasn't, he wasn't supposed to do that either. You're like, wait, that's not supposed to happen. You're not, that's, that's actually kind of blasphemous, scandalous. I don't even know how I feel about that. That's what the cross is. And so when Jesus cries out aloud, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most scandalous thing that Jesus said. At the point of Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus fully plunges himself into the humanity that every single human has ever felt. I, I promise every single person in here has felt at some point in their life forsaken by God. Some point in life, like why has God forgotten me? Why has God forsaken me? Why does God hate me? Something like that. Every single one of us. Some of us are still here and still can say, my God. Others have left altogether and don't, and the point is, Jesus experienced that. He experienced the forsakenness of just what it means to be human. To be human feels like being forsaken at times. Being betrayed. Jesus dipped all the way into that. He, this is Philippians 2 stuff that we talked about last year. Jesus plummeting further and further down to serve and to show what God is like and to experience our humanity in its fullness. And to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, to, to proclaim, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, to say that is to say something about Jesus, and it's also to say something about ourselves. You know that, right? When you say Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm a, I'm a disciple, you're not just saying something about Jesus, you're saying something about yourself. You're saying, I follow a crucified Messiah. I take up my cross to follow him as well. I see suffering as a pathway to peace and flourishing. I believe that there are deaths that lead to resurrections over and over and over again in my life. There are things that I will die to over and over and over again. And there is a, the mystery of resurrection at the end of that. Every, I believe that. You say something about yourself. If this is our Lord and this is what it means to follow him, then to what degree do we humble ourselves, do we plumb into the depths of our own suffering at times to follow Jesus. Now, let me give you just a very easy implication of what this means. Maybe I won't, I won't take it, I won't hyper-spiritualize it. I'll just take it pretty street level. Yesterday I was doing a, um, a, um, a lab, a conference, um, at, um, they called it a lab, a conference um, 
in the Bay Area on around sexuality. And I was teaching um, biblical, uh, the, the biblical teaching around human sexuality and all of that, all the complexity there. And I was teaching it to a room mainly of um, parents, a room full of mainly parents. And then you do Q&R at the end, question and response, and of course, whatever I do a lecture on sexuality to anyone, the question that comes up probably the most is, how do, how do we teach the biblical view of sexuality to our children? And that is the question, that is like one of the hardest questions. And I'm like, my answer is parenting is hard. That's my, it's so hard to be a parent, okay? That's my answer. But here's my like, um, Here's my, here's my serious answer. That that's also serious, but this is my serious, serious answer. I said to them, and I'll say this to you, what we need to recapture in the church is that being a Christian is strange. It's just a weird thing. You are strange. You are weird. And I, we all, all of us, try to fit into our work and our job and try to be this cool, you know, cool Christian, like, oh, no, 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 I just like whatever, like Jesus, you know. And we try to fit in, and we don't really own the fact that, oh no, we're peculiar, we're really weird, we're strange. Um, what we say is that our hero uh, died on a cross. We, we talk about suffering as if it's a, a, a gateway and a pathway to resurrection. We, we follow a Jesus who, who did not usurp some sort of power or anything like that but kept giving his life away and away and away and away that would make no sense in, in any, sort of, um, uh, any sort of economic scales at all. It doesn't make any sense. He just gives it away and away and away and then he dies alone on a cross and then that's our Lord and that's who we're following. That's weird. You can't get around the fact that that's strange. And not just that, but the things of Jesus are strange. The ways of Jesus are strange. The things that Jesus calls us to are strange. It's all very strange. And the second we don't think it's strange, we start to then twist it to, to fit like our cultural moment. And we try to twist it to fit like, but can I still do the thing I wanna do and follow Jesus? Well, I have to change Jesus a bit, but that's fine, because you know. But it, it is strange. You are strange. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're strange. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, what does it mean to be a Christian? There will be some, some things that you will, that you, to follow Jesus, you will believe that are just weird and strange. And in some upside down moral logic make complete sense. Look at verse 36. This is important. I only have a couple minutes left. Um, someone ran and filled a sponge with white vinegar, wine vinegar, and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now there's different competing like what in the world why would you do that to Jesus? Why would you give him wine vinegar? Some people think it was like a trick, like you think you're getting water, but you're getting vinegar. That's like the worst trick ever. If you're like thirsty and you drink vinegar. Um, or some people think it was, it was to numb the pain so it keeps him alive longer so he suffers more. We don't really know. It was something. So they put on a staff and they give it to him to drink. They offered it to him to drink. And they said this to him. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Now, when they're mocking Jesus on the cross, the, some of the ways they mock him and they say, what they say to him is, if you truly are the son of God, take yourself down from the cross. They say, um, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him from the cross. What this means is that, what they're saying is that Jesus' claims would be validated 
only if God would miraculously intervene and save him from the cross. Think about that. The crowd was saying, do you want to know, you don't know Jesus, who he said he is? You want to know if God's really powerful? If God was really powerful, God would save him from that suffering. God would save him from that cross. Now, many times, we think that God would be validated in his power and in his ability to be worthy if, we would just, if he would just deliver us from whatever it is we're going through. If you want to show yourself powerful, God, deliver me from this thing I'm going through. And that makes sense. I mean, I get that. I see that. I think that as well. I prayed that as well. Show your power by healing. And we think that's how God's power is shown, by miraculous deliverance from any sort of suffering. But the cross completely flips that upside down. In the mystery of God shown through the cross, sometimes the opposite is true. It's suffering well that reveals the power of God. It's the upside down logic of the kingdom. So it's precisely by remaining on the cross as the crucified king of Israel that Jesus reveals who he truly is. And so when he dies, this centurion who is not a believer in Jesus, never followed Jesus, is standing there going, no, this this was the son of God. You didn't have to come off the cross. You actually stayed on the cross to prove that. The way that you suffered and the way that you died, you are, this is the son of God. Mark's portrayal of the disciples throughout this whole thing is also, if if it's feeling too unattainable, if this is like, oh my gosh, the, the cross feels unattainable. Like, how do I even, how do I do this? How do I be a disciple? And that should be one of the questions that Mark brings up. Like, this is what it means? How do I do that? That seems impossible. But Mark is actually um, very, has a very sober view of, of, of human um, frailty. You and I are frail. Mark is very honest about that. Even Jesus' closest followers who have been given the secret of the kingdom of God fall away in time of trial. At the moment of Jesus' final struggle, of prayer to accept his vocation of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what the disciples were doing? They were sleeping. Mark leaves that in there. Peter says, I will never deny you, and denies him three times and breaks down and weeps when he realizes he's done so. Basically, in Mark, Mark is hardly cheerful, a cheerful optimist about the human capacity to fulfill the will of God. He knows well the weakness and the deceitfulness of the heart and the darkness of our mind. So if you're finding it hard to follow Jesus and you fail over and over again, you're in good company. That was everyone in the book of Mark, except, by the way, you'll you'll see this next week as the text moves on, except for the women. Everyone leaves except for the women, which is rad, and a sermon, and all itself. But they're not up close, they're still far, far, far back. Because there is something about this that the call of discipleship just takes us so far back or completely removes us altogether for a time. However, now listen, however, the call to discipleship is given and repeated again and again and again and again. There's not the slightest hint in this gospel that the requirement of God must be tailored or realistically limited because of human weakness. So, Mark is real honest about human frailty and weakness and honest about this is what it means to be a disciple. 
and it never ends. It never stops. Like it doesn't go, okay, well, maybe we should tweak being disciple to fit these uh, humans' weakness. That's not, that's not what happens. Mark completely is honest about you're frail, and this is the call. Over and in. This is the call. This is the call. Brings you back to it over and over and over again. So there might feel like for you this space between your human frailty. You might even have come in here and like, listen, I failed. I have failed. And I'll own that and I, I know that. And then I see this call to discipleship. I don't know how to get there. That seems impossible. And yet, the call to discipleship doesn't change. And your frailty is real. And so this, what's, what's this space between these two places? Well, first of all, it's grace. Grace is that space. Grace is that space that's extended. If you keep reading in the gospel, if you keep reading in Acts, if you keep reading the rest of the New Testament, grace is that space that bridges those in between. If you read Peter's story after this, after he denies, grace is that space. And there is a continual call to this discipleship. Grace and a continual call. Grace and a continual call. So when Peter, when Jesus raises from the dead, he cooks Peter a meal, and he asks him three times, do you love me? Because Peter denied Jesus three times, right? So do you love me? Okay, I'm calling you into ministry, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He restores Peter, and the call is still there. He doesn't go, Peter, you failed. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna change what it means to be a disciple for you because you're not really good at it. So we'll, just do, we'll do like a custom fit for you, like a bespoke discipleship plan for you. Doesn't do that. He's like, you failed, there's grace. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Here's the call. And what God, what we know in our human capacity the human, what we can do, what God's, the abilities that God's given us, we actually can bridge that gap. By the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, we can. And so there are moments that feel like this is the death that Jesus is calling me to die today, and this is the death that Jesus is calling me to die in a year from now. And every single time, there could be a different call of what it means to die, but it's always there. Sometimes it's to leave a life of abuse, drugs, um, spending your money all on yourself and no one else, hoarding, like whatever it is, like this thing, just like die to that. And then later on it might be die. Like literally physically die. Like martyrdom. I want you to go to this nation to preach the gospel and you might die. Will you do that? Very funny way to end this. I don't know why I'm doing this, but when I first moved to San Francisco, I thought I was uh, gonna be a martyr. <laughs> we started the church in the Castro, and I thought literally I would be stabbed every Sunday walking out of the church. And I had to, <laughs> had to come to peace. It sounds so stupid to say now, but I had to come to peace with this thing, like, what if I died here? What if, like, I'm preaching, and then, you know, this demonic person just stabs me in the heart or something? And I'm like, I'll, okay. That's the way I'm gonna die. And I would just, I remember I would walk out of the church in the Castro and go, okay, let's do it. And I would just walk. <laughs> it sounds so stupid now looking back on it, but 
there's different deaths that Jesus will call you to. Will you preach the gospel in San Francisco coming from a town called Bakersfield? That seems like a death. Like a literal, like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna go die there. For sure, I'm gonna die. And then it's later on, it's different deaths. And this, this is what it looks like. Maybe you felt like a death, you moving here to San Francisco. It might be a death for you to move some other place to preach the gospel. It might be a death to give up whatever it is that you're holding on to right now. This is the call and it does not change. This is discipleship and it does not change. We follow a crucified Messiah. Would you stand with me as we pray?